Hi, folks. We're doing a special episode of the GWG show about the video game Disco Elysium. And today I am happy to be joined by Roger Whitson. Hi there. And Jamie Woodcock. Hello. And Jamie Woodcock is our special guest for the day. He's a senior lecturer at the Open University and a researcher based in London. He's also the author of The Fight Against Platform Capitalism, The Gig Economy, and Marx at the Arcade. And it's that last book where I started to get to know his work, although I've actually been working my way through your critical introduction to the gig economy, which is great. So spoiler warning, we will be doing a two to three episodes on Disco Elysium. This first episode is going to cover about the first third, the first couple of days in game uh, up through getting the body down and meeting the union boss we'll try not to go any farther than that but you've been warned so disco elysium is a computer role-playing game that was originally based off of a tabletop game it's also loosely based off of a novel it is i would say a police procedural rpg so that you're a detective, an amnesiac detective, who is trying to figure out what's going on. And there's a murder case, as there often is in a detective game. And it is created by the studio ZA slash UM, which is based in Tallinn, Estonia, the capital of Estonia, with Robert Hurwitz as creative director and writer. He's also the person that wrote the novel, Sacred and Terrible Air, that the game relates to. Uh, Alexander Rostov is the artistic director who did most of the background art and the UI art. And then Helen Hindpair uh, is another one of the main writers for the studio. And the studio actually started out as a loose artist collective working on visual art, music, and playing tabletop role-playing games, especially Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, they eventually made this tabletop game that the game would become based on uh, and eventually decided to make a video game in part because the novel that Kurtwitz wrote uh, was a utter failure selling only about a thousand copies. And so they decided to try to make a video game and see if that would be any more successful. Spoiler, I guess, it was successful. Very successful. <laughs> the games won a lot of awards, sold very well, well enough that in fact, all of us are playing the new Final Cut, which is fully voiced, has a couple additional quests. But yeah, so I think maybe the way we should start out is talk about what each of our playing situations is and how we're feeling at the beginning so far. So Roger, maybe you could start us off. My playing situation, well, and my What build. are you playing on? Oh, I'm playing on uh, PlayStation 4. Um, and I had already bought the original version of it and just didn't get very far into it. I, I bought it when it was released on Mac back in the summer. And um, I think for whatever reason, I was just not in the middle of the pandemic. I just couldn't um, digest a lot of the text and really get into it. And so I kind of put it on a back burner. And then when Final Cut was coming out, I decided, well, I should really get into it. So that's kind of where I am. What about you, Jamie? So, so I'm playing on PC. Um, and it's, it, it's funny, right? I, I mean, I bought this a while ago. And I was trying to find an excuse to play it. And uh, yeah, I'll say one one thing about my feeling about this sort of game from the get-go is despite being someone who who writes for a living, um, and you know, it's funny that you say selling a thousand copies of the book mm. was a huge failure. Like that's quite good for academic books, right? Like <laughs> right. it's like not doing too badly for some academic books. But I, I usually really don't like games that 
that have so much text. Um, um, and one of the game workers that I know in London that we've been doing some organizing with um, has been recommending this game to me and saying, you know, you should really play it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the podcast pushed me into, into playing it. Um, and I kind of, I feel like I've been missing out, right? Like I yeah. should have, I should have played it sooner. Um, but yeah, so far, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess we'll get into some of the, the, the themes of it and so on, but I, yeah, I do wish I'd, I'd kicked off into it sooner, really. So, so Jamie, I had the same sort of response to like these text-based games, um, like, you know, I was really sort of interested in playing Torment Tides of Numen- Numenia. Is that how you pronounce Numenera, it? Numenera, yeah. Numenera. Um, but started it and I was like, oh, too much text, not doing this. Right. And um, I think what changed it for me was actually just deciding to get get through Kentucky Route Zero. Finally, like I, I had the same kind of kind of hesitancy. Um, and so, yeah, like it is it is totally worth it. You just have to kind of shift how you think of what you're doing when you're playing a game, I think. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I, yeah, and I think the art style helps, right? It's, I right. have this image in my mind that a text-based game is going to be these just huge walls of text, and it's definitely not not like that, right? There's also right. quite a lot of other things going on, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think that I think the uh, the the ad addition of the voices actually helps quite a bit to the to the drama of the game in a lot of ways. So. Absolutely. And, and, you know, just to sort of set the scene for folks who maybe, you know, have only touched a game once or twice, it's an isometric role-playing game. So you have a kind of top-down view at an angle, sort of hearkening back to those classic early Bioware games, your Baldur's Gates, your Planescapes, uh, your Icewind Dales, and uh, text plays out to the right. Uh, I think actually one of the really smart moves that like you were uh, sort of hinting at Roger is that even as you're in dialogue, you still have the characters on the screen to the left. And occasionally you'll see some kind of actions play out physically between the characters as you are engaged in dialogue and the actions really often occur in dialogue as well. And so, you know, you're pointing and clicking through dialogue and pointing and clicking through a kind of world map, uh, but it, they do manage to make it, I think, a pretty lively game nonetheless. Um, and there's a sense of humor, which we should talk about. And I think that sense of humor actually helps carry the game along because it could be very, I think it could be even you know, much slower if they didn't have that sense of humor. Mm. I'm playing the game for a second time. Uh, I'm playing it on uh, PlayStation. Uh, right now, the Final Cut version. Uh, I was sort of complaining before we started the podcast. I don't love the porting to console job. It's just a pathfinding, moving your character around feels very difficult at times. Uh, my first playthrough of the game was on PC. Uh, in fact, I had a new uh, gaming laptop that I got in part to play this game because I knew I wanted to play it with a mouse. And uh, I actually had my motherboard crap out on me. And so, and I didn't know it was a faulty motherboard. My GPU was just overheating because of the interaction with the motherboard. (laughs) I just, I played this game with it constantly crashing, got two thirds of the way through and finally had to send it in to Dell. Oh wow! And then I got it back and it was like, okay, okay. Now this is what it's like to actually have this game working. Uh, Although I will say one thing I'm always surprised about is, uh, and maybe I shouldn't be surprised because this is the studio's first game. Uh, and this is a very minor qualm. It feels horribly optimized. 
Like mm. this game does not feel like it has very efficient code under the hood. Mm. Uh, just to kind of even going from one place to another, the amount of loading time on basically any Pretty machine uh, feels a little lengthy, even especially with an SSD. Like when you're going in and out of the of the of the apartment, and you have to like, there are load screens to go inside, and then to get to the balcony, and then yeah. get to the second. That's like okay, this takes like five minutes to get to this one room. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the payoff is there, I think, but I was yeah, just a totally. little surprised. Um, I had a question as you guys, as y'all were talking. Uh, have were are you uh, fans of isometric RPGs and? Like, what's the sort of, like, it's interesting to me that this was an isometric RPG because initially, I'm a huge fan. So, um, you know, love the Divinity games, love Pillars of Eternity. Um, and I actually, I'm one of those people that when I don't have an isometric RPG, I'm like, where's the next one kind of thing. And came to this game initially expecting that. And I think maybe that's why I bounced off so so harshly on it initially because of those expectations. Um, so how did, how, what are your relationships to the isometric RPG and, and, and how it shows up in this game? I think that's, that's a good question, right? Like I, I'm a, was a fan of, of Baldur's Gate and games like that. So there's, which gives this kind of, I, I have a strange familiarity playing this game, right? Is mm. it's been a long time since I've played an isometric game, mm. but yet, there's a familiarity and then it's so different because, well, some of the things we'll get on to talk about later, the setting and and some of the themes. But I also think the humor cuts through, right? Mm. You know, there's, I mean, I guess to some extent, you know, there are, there are kind of some isometric games that have, you know, like Fallout has a very particular sense of humor, right? Um, so there, there are kind of, they feel like there are reference points with it in a way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. It, do, it does to me, yeah. I played um, Wasteland 3 earlier this year, and there is a humor to that, but it's mostly satirical, not kind of goofy and weird <laughs> like this one. Although there is satire in this too. Right, Wasteland 3 being actually made by the team that originally made those first two Fallout games, right, in Exile. Uh, yeah, I've got, I think, a probably similar history to you, Jamie, in terms of like, I was playing these in the 90s. Uh, I played the first two Fallouts. I played a lot of Fallout 2. I played Baldur's Gate and Baldur's Gate 2, Planescape Torment. Uh, I think I, it's funny because in the 90s, I think I was playing them mostly because I could never get a tabletop group uh, to commit. And so I, that was the closest I had, you know, I had all of these like D&D &D manuals and I could never actually get a game going. So I was just, I knew all the rules and was just playing them on a computer where you didn't actually need to know the rules, uh, at least not really. Uh, but, I, but I agree there's that sense of humor. Even the Baldur's Gate games and the Forgotten Realms license stuff had a sense of humor to it. I think because honestly, playing a tabletop role-playing game, let alone like a CRPG straight face is a bit of a hard thing to do uh there has to be a little bit of humor to kind of soften the absurdity of what you're doing uh i i think as i started playing it though i think my first impression of it was more that it was a point and click game mm. and then as you kind of play a bit more i was like oh there are you know th there's a dice roll happening here hold on yeah. a minute you know i was yeah. kind of a little because I, I did this thing which I've been trying to do more recently, which obviously I haven't done now because we're talking about it and we've we've you know we have read into some of the background and so on of really trying to whenever possible play a game completely cold, 
Um, and this, th there's that particular feeling that I always think about when you do that of, it's like when you played games when you were a kid and it's, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. You haven't kind of read ahead. You don't know what the mechanics are. And doing that with this game was bizarre, like totally <laughs> bizarre. You know, I'd had my friend being like, you'll really like it. I don't want to spoil anything about it. You know, you, you will really enjoy it. I don't want to give anything away. And then there's like, there's no explanation of how things work when you start the game, right? There's no tutorial. There's no like, it makes, you know, when you, yeah. and I guess we could talk a bit about the different builds and so on, but like it asks you to do a build and doesn't tell you in any way what it's going to be used for or like why any of these things would be better or worse choices, which I yeah. found a little bit like there's no hand holding, right? Right. Um, and not even analogs. Like in other RPGs, you kind of, oh, I kind of know strength is this something that will make me hit harder kind of thing. Yeah. So you, you start off and you get these four archetypes to, or really three archetypes and you create your own. So the thinker, the sensitive, and the physical. And I feel like as soon as you get phrases like the sensitive, you know you're in a kind of different landscape where you're warrior, mage, uh, you mm. know, barbarian or whatever, analogs are going to be loose at best. And then you look at the attributes below those archetypes, you know, and you get intelligence. That's pretty, you know, obvious. But then you also get psyche. <laughs> and physique and and first of all what's the difference between psyche and intellect you know you've got to parse that and you kind of can't uh and then what's the difference between physique and motorics right mm. and motorics will speak to the kind of steampunk flavor of some of the game i think mm. uh there's your kind of deus ex hacker uh skill that falls under that if only loosely uh whereas physique's going to be kind of fighter flight mechanisms there um but as soon as you see, at least for me, as soon as I saw that one of the skills under, uh, I believe it's Psyche, was Inland Empire, your reference to David Lynch's work. Uh, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, as soon as you get the David Lynch reference, you're like, okay. And of course, I dropped just like as many points as I could into Inland Empire. Uh, foolishly, perhaps. Inland Empire and Encyclopedia where my go-to uh, skill drops, you know, where That's I drop a lot of my points into it. Uh, I avoided dropping almost anything in the physique uh, yeah. or any into the like physical attributes. Uh, but what did other folks do? I, I now can't remember the name after you saying the Inland Empire one. One of the, I can't remember the name of the skill, right? It's, I think something like, about gauging how other people's emotions and where they're coming from, but the name is now escaping me. Oh. So there's two there. There's a uh, empathy is actually one. Okay. Uh, but there's also composure. Um, and there's composure. rhetoric. I love yeah. rhetoric. Yeah, I I mostly did sensitive. Like I mostly did a sensitive build, and then at different parts wanted like I wanted more rhetoric, and then I wanted more logic. And now I'm bumping up my shiver. I became pragmatic towards the end, but I definitely started as a sensitive. Yeah, I think w when I was offered the archetypes, I had like no idea what any of these would be. So I just kind of thought, I'm not going to, I'm not, I, can't, I don't know which one to pick because I feel like I'm going to make a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was empathy, um, but also inland empire. Um, <laughs> and I have like no idea what, whether this was a good idea, whether this was, you know. What is Inland Empire? Is it like, I got the sense that it was kind of like how you sense people thought as a group. 
Is that right? It's a little bit more. I mean, there's some of that, but there's also some of like, I mean, if they would have called it like the weird, you know, you know how in like Lovecraft or in a lot of those sort of weird fiction writers, there is the one person that's not quite psychic, but can sense when there are weird emanations, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what you're getting. I think, right. You're getting, you're getting age, whatever agent Dale Cooper's ability was in twin peaks. See, like what is the difference between that and then shiver? Because I thought that's shiver. Shiver is more related to the city itself. That's the only and this is the thing, is like some of these differences are utterly difficult to parse. And I and I do think that depending on your feelings about these kinds of mechanics, the game could be a turnoff because there's so much going on Mm -hmm. underneath the hood that's opaque. I mean, I think I told this to you in chat one day. Roger, because I wasn't sure if you're aware, and I'm not sure if the game really signals it, but there's a lot of weighted dice rolls in the game. Yeah. Right? There's a lot of things where if you pick a dialogue thing, it won't tell you this, but all of a sudden the percentage of your ability to do another thing will go up, right? Your points won't have gone up, your skill base won't have gone up, but all of a sudden like picking one dialogue option or doing one action will radically transform your ability to do another thing. Oh. And there's no explicit uh you know declaration of that anywhere well and i think jamie alluded to this earlier but like every time one of your skills pops up right every time it says inland empire or shiver every time shivers talks to you or inland empire talks to you that's a dice roll right every time and so like that took me a long time to even get like i was like oh i'm like so basically we're just rolling dice all the time yeah it's odd, right? That, like, as you say, there. Although I guess no, it's not that odd because you know previous isometric games have a lot of the dice rolling under the hood, of course. But that you get the explicit dice rolling as well, right? Um, which I have. To, I think I said this earlier on. I was really surprised to see dice rolling because I, when it first happened, I thought, well, oh, there's been like no sense that that's where this game is going, right? Um, yeah. I, I do think that there was one skill. And maybe this is going to start a particular line of, uh, of discussion, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Is the one about like being friends with cops that skill? <laughs> I was just like, no, come on, that's not the one I'm putting points into, right? And, like, I think even the description is like how well you get on with your cop friends, it's like something like that. I just thought, oh god. <laughs> no, there's definitely some like. There's also just some that are just like you know, license to be a jerk, you know, yeah. license to be a real douche or tech, uh, you know, authority, uh, which is authority. If, wa- if you want to use it, it's a really useful skill in the game. I have avoided it, but I've seen other people's sort of playthroughs and what you can do with it. And you can kind of strong arm your way through the game much more so with authority than you can with any of the physical skills mm. in the game. Right. Mm. Because it's a kind of like, overpowering charisma in which you just kind of marshal people to your will. And uh, I think we're all playing, uh, maybe it's a sort of giveaway that we're all lefty academics here because we're all playing like Inland Empire and Empathy and Sensitive uh, (laughs) instead of, you know, going for Fighter Build or something. Although I, I will admit that usually in RPGs, my first playthrough of an RPG, I tend to go for a vanilla Fighter Build just to get a kind of base level 
of the game before I then go back and play through as like a mage or something. But even my first time playing through this, I could just tell that if I tried to do a physical build for this game, I was going to really suffer. Well, uh, I, think, I think it's really interesting to ask that question. Like, why is it in sort of quote unquote normal RPGs, right? Why do we, because uh, I do the same thing, like, especially when I'm playing Dark Souls, I always go for the fighter because it's just sort of the path of least resistance. And that's kind of, and I don't have to think about a lot of things, right? I'm thinking about, I'm just trying to think about how to get through the level. I'm not trying to think about all the different spells and all of that stuff. Um, but it's interesting, yeah, like with this game, it was more that I um, didn't want to have that. Like, I didn't want to have that kind of gaming experience. And there was something about this game that, like, dissuade me from that not just like in terms of i think the you know success of getting through the game but just like what the game what the game experience is supposed to be like maybe yeah no i mean there this game sort of wears some of its influences on its sleeves, but it also presents you with a kind of like brash friction for lack of a better way of putting it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, there's a little bit of a kind of fuck you to the player in a way that I appreciate. Not, it's not horribly obtuse, but it's just obtuse enough. And it lets you know that there's going to be some difficult moments and that you're going to have to do some legwork in this game. And yeah. how folks feel about that. I like that there are a number of moments where, you know, you do the the usual gameplay thing of like, you're kind of testing the limits and seeing what works, what doesn't and trying out different responses. And it kind of like rebukes you at a number of points. Mm. And it's like, you idiot, why have you done this? You think, <laughs> oh, okay, right. Okay. Yep. Sure. Okay. I won't, I won't try that angle again. Right. There is um, literally a piece of dialogue that says, just because this is an option in the dialogue stream doesn't mean you should pick it. Yeah. <laughs> there is that. a kind of meta RPG thing going on here, right? Of people that have played tabletop games and, you know, when you're playing a tabletop game and you go in and out of character and you make fun of your friends and shoot the shit and then go back to actually playing a character. Uh, the game's doing that a bit with you, right? Which I really love. Uh you know, maybe something that we haven't talked about, we should, so maybe we should talk about this and then move on to actually talking about how the game opens. But one of the things that's really distinct about the game is that there's this kind of war between different ideas and thoughts going on in your head. And, you know, I think it's worth noting that the actual original title of this game, in fact, even when they were getting venture capital for it, it was still titled this, but the original title was No Truce with the Furies. Wow. Uh, so this idea that like your brain is full of furies that are just kind of like of these different warring ideas. And you, you know, there's a whole system in this game where you can actually pick ideas that give you stat or skill boosts, attribute boosts, uh, and also other kinds of benefits or sometimes disadvantages in the game. Uh, so I have one. I forget the exact name of it, but it's essentially like the feminist one that really gives you the chance to call out people's misogyny in dialogue and everybody hates you for it. You're essentially like <laughs> Sarah Ahmed's like feminist killjoy in the best way, uh, where you're just like raining on everybody's parade when they're just trying to have fun by saying misogynist things. Uh, so there's like, you know, there are ideas like that. I'm trying to play, I should just say like a multi 
culturalist, like a kind of like weirdly liberal, but like super capitalist liberal. I think in the game, you'd be called an ultra liberal. My first playthrough, I was trying to play the Bolshevik, you know, sort of run in this playthrough. I'm trying to be like ultra capital capitalist, but the friendly capitalist, mm -hmm. um, which is not always easy because they want you to also lean towards fascist. But yeah, what are people, how do people feel about these kind of like warring ideas and different dialogue choices and the way they're being presented as like this internal dialogue within yourself? I, I mean, I thought this was one of the things that I've kind of, I think when we talked earlier about like text heavy games, I think is a way of, of breaking that up that kind of, it does things in a different way, right? Like the, the inner, it's like a more complicated inner monologue, which I think if you were to do it going through what the character was, you know, going through what the character was thinking, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't work in the same way, right? Um, and I think, you know, there are a couple of moments in it where, you know, if you follow particular thought patterns in that kind of internal monologue, you can see that you're being kind of dragged between things. I mean, the stuff about smoking, I just thought was excellent. Um, where you have the dialogue about, should I ask them for a cigarette? And then, you know, go and buy some, you really want, you know, just have one. And you kind of get these moments of, there's like broader psychological conversations and then like nagging, I want to go and smoke a cigarette kind of internal monologues, which I thought if you just did big ideas, it would come across as like, this is really kind of, you know, it doesn't work in the same way but i think having those kind of multiple levels I, I quite liked you know it kind of gave you the sense of being hung over at the beginning of the game right it's like yeah. what am i going to do next what are my pressures what am i you know it did make me want to smoke a cigarette as well which you know was kind of being dragged along with the narrative right i i loved it i thought it you know i i kept trying to connect it to like how role-playing works in like computer games and like how you have a character, but it's it's so external. Like there's such an a sort of like external view of the world in a lot of those old school role-playing games, right? You're just there to fight things and to conquer and to take over the world. That's what you're there for. And in this game, you know, it very much made me want to like think of like affect and like emotions and like the idea, like all of these crazy ideas about like, are we really in control of our own you know, bodies and thoughts and ideas, right? Or is there something much more complicated going on within us as individuals? Are we individuals, right? Or is there some, are we, you know, just sort of collections of these sort of warring parts of ourselves? Um, and uh, I just, I had never had that experience in a game before, I don't think. And so um, I think that's my favorite, probably my favorite part of the game is really this, this idea that like, we're not, you know, we're not just, well, we are a character sheet, but it's like the character sheet is talking to us in a way. But it's the, there's a kind of meta narrative that runs alongside mm -hmm. that, right? Which, mm -hmm. you know, I think, like what I want to say is it's about structure and agency, which makes it sound much less interesting than it really is, right? But I think yeah. the fact that you know, we talked about putting points into these random skills where you have like no idea what they're going to be. And then they start talking to you, you know? So there's like a moment where you're like, wow, okay. Like now I see that this is more than just points, right? There's like a narrative that goes with the choices you've made. Yeah. Um, which was a thing that, I mean, that just 
I was not expecting that at all, right? It, um, it kind of reminded me in a weird way, I don't know, of Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus when the seven deadly sins are personified. Like this old medieval plays where they will personify, you know, sinful states or things like that. It reminded me of, of a different version of that. Yeah, and I think that's a really good way of putting it is that this is the game in which you're not just talking to the NPCs, you're actually talking to your character sheet or your skills, right? Yeah. right? Your character sheet, your skills, your attributes are voices in your head. And they're voices in your head with different characters and different styles. And mostly, and I will say, I find this to be maybe a weakness of the final cut version of the voicing. They're mostly voiced by a single person, which I think was both like a smart budgetary move and an overall mistake. Uh, just personally, it just didn't work very well for me, but I'm not a huge fan of the voice acting in this game. Uh, I mostly don't like it. Um, well, it's the difference between, I think when you go to sleep, right? And you get in, in and your the reptilian mind talks to you yeah. and then the, the limbic system talks to you and they're very different, right? And, yeah. they're, and I think that kind of effect could have been really cool if they were able to extend that to the rest of the game. And this is the studio's first game, and they're still probably working with a pretty constrained budget. And so I, I appreciate that they were even able to get a, another version of this out. And, you know, there were some problems with the launch, and yet they've really kept up with patching the game. They didn't just sort of abandon it, uh, which is often easy to do when you're doing, like, the re-release of a game. And so, I, you know, I appreciate what the studio is doing in that regards. But... Uh, you know, just thinking of these as different voices inside your head, and that's what you're negotiating. And they can kill you, right? You can die in this game, not from an interaction with an NPC or for some kind of fight, mm -hmm. but because you're hungover. And, you know, this will bring us, I think, nicely in the beginning of the game and actually talk about the story proper. Because you're hungover and you just start, like, going down a rabbit hole of a really bad or dark thought. And I don't know if any of you let yourself die at the beginning of the game. I sort of purposely killed myself a few times, but you can I'm kill never... yourself really easily oh, if you wow. follow the wrong thought, right? And I did that a few times on purpose because I, oh, like I, I did. said, I played this. I committed, I did commit suicide. Oh, this might be too late, but I have committed suicide in the game. Yeah. And each time you get a newspaper article about this cop that's died uh and martinez you know and it's like cop died from heart attack heart you know cop died from wounded heart uh from lost love or things like that i think uh, uh, just really quickly to to talk a little bit more about this question of agency that that jamie brought up because i think it's really crucial like like this question of like i think really the question is where does agency come from right how do we how do we make decisions? <laughs> Which seems like such a simple question, but it's actually extremely complex. And, and, and like the other side of it is like, that I find with a lot of these skills that this, this game kind of brings out because the skills talk to you, you become, to use Blake's phrase, you become what you behold, you become what you invest in. You become like, if you invest a lot in physical instrument, you're constantly going to be trying to, beat people up because that's going to be the voice that's going to be talking to you. And so it's, it's interesting about how those consequences um, sort of add up to this question of like, what is a person and how do they make these decisions and what, you know, do they end up killing themselves at the beginning of the, of the game and what, what stops them or what, or, or on the other hand, what gets the, what, what makes that suicide, that death happen? Why? Exactly. And these are, you know, they can be strengths and weaknesses. Inland Empire as a skill can open you up 
to dying relatively quickly, actually, because you're sort of like opening yourself to these weird semi-supernatural influences. And at the same time, it's a good way to go down a rabbit hole and have your morale, which is one of your other two stats, right? You have health and morale. And these are very low. They're like three or four or five or six at most, I think. And, you know, you have health and morale and they can be damaged. And if you don't have anything to heal yourself for either of them, then you can just quickly pass away. And uh, yeah, why don't we, why don't we get into the opening of the game? Uh, you open the game, right? You're hungover in a hotel room uh, above a cafe and you don't know who you are. You're an amnesiac. <laughs> uh, yeah. How'd people find the opening? Like, oh, what did you do? How did you feel about it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I said this earlier on, right? Like I, I tried to go in completely cold to play it. And so I just found it, the, it like the first 10 minutes, it's totally baffling, aren't they? Because you're just like, what is, what is going on? And then your character doesn't know, the people you're talking to have no idea. But there is, you know, not to say, you know, that anxiety-inducing hangovers are like a regular part of my <laughs> existence, but there is a real feeling of that time, you know, that you like wake up and you're like, what have I done? And people are like, oh, I don't want to talk to you about it. Is like you really get this sense of like the dread of a hangover comes through in the first, well, I mean, it doesn't end after 10 minutes, right? It like keeps popping up at various points. But yeah, I just, I could really relate to his, you know, what have I done? Where am I? What's going on? There's a kind of a lot of atmosphere in those first 10, 15 minutes, right? Yeah, you're, you're, eye is on the ceiling fan. You can also die from failing to get your, I down from the ceiling fan well, uh, which I also did. Uh, How does that work? Why do you die because the tide? I can't remember if it's a physical or a morale thing. I actually think you have a heart attack. You can really wow. easily have a heart attack in the first like 20 minutes of the game, huh. uh, which I guess is how Eastern European hangovers work. I'm not really <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> but uh yeah, I mean, you're everything's just a wreck in this room, right? And you're told that you're gonna have to pay for the fact that it's a wreck by the owner of the cafe a little bit later, who you although know, it doesn't immediately hates you. Oddly, it does like after you pay, it's not like it gets cleaned up. You know, listen, <laughs> art costs money, Roger. Art costs money. Uh, imagine how long the load screens would have been if they yeah. had to uh, pick yeah. between two different possible backgrounds. Uh, yeah, no, and you just yeah, you feel hungover at that beginning and that anxiety. I totally agree, Jamie, of that like, what have I done? Which is also like a reminder that like this isn't Skyrim where you're completely building your character from scratch, right? You have a character with some set parameters, and you can do more than tweak them. Like you can define personality, but there are like constraints and limits in terms of personal history. Mm. Well, you're a cop, right? There's like no getting around that. Well, you can you can deny it or disavow it, right? But you're still a cop. <laughs> but, but I thought there are some quite nice moments, right? Because like you don't know your name, um, and I thought this was going for the classic setup of like, you know, you talk to someone, they're like, "Oh, what is your name?" And then you're given some options, and if you choose them, they're like, "That's not your name, you idiot!" Like, are you still, <laughs> you know, you've, you you haven't sobered up yet or whatever? <laughs> and so th there are some like nice kind of meta moments where. I just thought, oh, is this, you know, this will be the moment they've like found a way to integrate choosing your name into uh, like the flow of the conversation. But no, it's just like a moment for the game to call you like a clown 
and carry on as you're picking up shoes and you know surveying and you can also the wreckage, right? Right, like you can say, like, no, nah, that's not my name. And my favorite thing is that Lee. That's like the segue to like one of my favorite thoughts, which I think is something like disco super cop, yeah, uh, which say. you can do right, and you can lean into. Uh, and you know, so you can say that's not my name. That doesn't sound very disco. <laughs> and he constructs this identity that is very Charlie's Angels, for lack of a better reference, of disco super cop, where you could just imagine him you know with bell bottoms or like super flared slack well, and he has that he has that yeah that, yeah you that can get that close but isn't that that's one of the early quests right it's like you see the karaoke stuff and it's like i must come back and sing the song again and you think oh where is this going like oh it goes places <laughs> i was gonna say has anybody managed to sing yeah Okay, I let's signed. not go into that because I think that's a little bit later. But the okay. voice that comes out is... Uh, oh, my God. There's two possible voices, too. <laughs> yep. And, uh, I... and they're interesting. But uh, we should come back to that later. Because yeah. uh, it's that's a quest worth doing. Um, even though, like a lot of quests in this game, in this game, there's not much rewarding you for things, right? Like, the things you get Quest is a bit rich, right? Yeah. Yeah. Quest is yeah, I feel like quest is a bit much. It's like yeah. it's like a, a hint of something you might want to consider maybe doing, right? Yeah, task might yeah. be the right word, but even that seems a little bit overly formal or something. Right. Right. Okay, so you so you bl- manage to blunder out of your room, which takes a few moments. You look in a mirror, have a deep moment. You can kill yourself then too, by the way, very easily. Uh you know, there it's another one of those moments where introspection might be the death of you. Uh, and then you blunder out of your hotel room, make your way downstairs, maybe have another conversation on the way, uh, interact well, with a really... There's Kaja, dream. right? I yeah, yeah. And I was stupid and flirted with Kaja, which ended up being like a weird thing later on, which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah, um, but it was just a, a very minor. You don't even know who these people are, like, and they end up being these huge characters later on, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people that you meet that you don't know initially the weight. You know, they're a particular weight in the story, and it turns out they might actually have quite some weight. Yeah. Uh, and then you know, you get downstairs and you find out there's a body behind the cafe that's hanging. And in fact, one of the first things you have to do in a game is get the body down in order to do a field autopsy. And that, I feel like that is the moment where you realize the game can be difficult. Mm-hmm. Even just trying to get close to the body. So I wonder what folks' experiences were with like getting the body down, getting close to the body, maybe without vomiting, maybe with vomiting, but not dying, hopefully. Because you can't vomit to death, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, that's that's a particularly bad hangover, right? <laughs> yeah, um, right. I mean, oof, like post Berlin nightclub. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, that bit. I kind of thought. I mean, I guess this is the bit where you have to kind of confront the fact that you're actually, despite your attempt at karaoke and trashing the room and stuff, is like this is your cop business, right? You've got to like go and handle this and and sort it out. Um, but I mean. One of the things, I mean, I, I, one of, yeah, one of the things that I found particularly unusual about this game, and I guess thinking back to other isometric games where there are no children, um, you know, often these games are devoid of any 
children or if there are children they you can't talk to them or, or anything is you then just get abused by this kid like over and over again <laughs> um which i thought was a kind of character moment of yeah a, a quite an unusual thing in a video game right to have these these kids like basically just abusing you while you're hung over um which i thought was an yeah an unusual thing right i don't do a lot of editing and post in the show but i sort of want to edit in some voice uh work from juno uh you know then you know choice phrases like juno will fuck you up pig <laughs> uh, because a he refers to himself in the third person and b he generally only calls you pig or some variation thereof right right yeah. but it's like a, it's a conflict right that isn't handled how many RPGs would handle a conflict, right? It's like you're, you know, you can try and talk him round, you can try to, you know, you can try being more authoritative or whatever, but like it's a really complicated yeah. thing to try and resolve with him, right? Well, he like in, you know, like I can imagine a similar quest in Divinity where you come up across a kid like that and you learn that their lives, their home lives are horrible and you have to like, or like maybe his, maybe his father sold them into slavery and you have to like get him out of slavery, like something, something like that, that would resolve it. Right. Which is not at all what happens. There's, I think there's a, and I don't know if this gives, this probably goes too far into the game, but once you learn his backstory, it's almost like a, like a dark version of something like one of those sort of typical RPG stories that you find. It's also, I mean, I think this is speaks to the game more generally, but Kuno, this little red-haired boy that you meet while he's throwing rocks at the hanging body. Yeah. Uh, you know, and basically he's just shouting, you dirty pig, and things like that at you. He's also the voice that reminds you that being a cop is maybe not a good thing. Right. Yeah. And he does so forcefully. Other people sort of tiptoe around that and maybe kind of hint at the fact that they don't really like cops where you are. You're in Martinez in Revanchol. You're in this kind of like post-revolutionary uh, city that's been trashed by the forces that put the revolution down, that put the communars down. Uh, there's definitely a kind of reference to the 1871 Paris Commune and its kind of failure there and the bloodiness of its failure, in fact, right? The massacre. Uh, and the really law in that area of town is generally the union. And the union is going to be a big part of this game, so we'll come back to it. But everybody's suspicious of you because you are a cop and cops are not well liked in that area. They're, you know, they're the friggin' forces of the bourgeoisie keeping order. And mm -hmm. Juno is just a really obscene version of voicing that and saying, like, we don't have any respect for you. And if you're going to have anything like respect or gain anything like respect, you're going to have to earn it. And you're not going to earn it by solving a case, by the way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, Kuno became one of my favorite characters. And he goes a long way. And we'll talk about that in other episodes. But, you know, he's, you know, one of the voices is you're trying to investigate this body that you're hearing. And you know, besides the voices in your head. And it's, you know, it'd be a little traumatizing. You're yeah. not a hero is the kind of message there. Right. And don't forget that. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how nice you are to him. That's yeah, what's interesting. Exactly. About it. In fact, the nicer you are, the more likely you are to have him curse at you more, which is great. Right. Um, where did folks um, go to 
from the tree where the body is hanging? Like, where did you go from there? How much did you find out about the body and the person that is the body? Uh, where did you go from there? How do you get the body down? So my first wall and where I ended my first aborted playthrough over the summer actually was trying to get um, the bot. What was it? The bodyguard? What was his name? The ma machine guy, like big uh, racist guy. What was his name? I'm blanking on it right now. Uh, I'll try to look it up, but just keep going. Anyway, like I, okay. So I tried to fight him. <laughs> I'm sure that I did well. That did not go too well. And um, I was like, what is going on here? And he's such, he's just ridiculous to listen to. He just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on about this, this horrible racism. Uh, and I think that's where I stopped the first time. I was like, I have no idea what this game is. I'm kind of overwhelmed right now. I have to stop. But um, the second time I played, like more recently, I decided to brush up on my racial theory, uh, which was uh, kind of weird. So I, I, that was one of the, the thoughts you could have in your head and develop. And I went back and he was impressed um, somewhat. And um, I got past that part and he actually got the body down. But uh, I wasn't too like proud that I learned racist theory in order to get a body down, which was an interesting, I think, moment in the game. And I think it's a moment that's, and by the way, the character's name is Measurehead. Measurehead, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, is a riff on phrenology, right? Like on mm. eugenics and the science of, mm. you know, measuring people's head to kind of diagnose how likely they are to be criminals, uh, right. you know, courtesy of good old Cesare Lombroso. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he's a great character just because he's so awful and wonderful at the same time. Mm. He's mm. basically talking about how the equivalent within that world of Caucasians or whites are this degenerate subspecies of the human that are clearly in decline to be sort of overtaken by himself, who's, you know, uh, you know, black character, black diaspora character, uh, who is talking about how he himself is this kind of representation of the best of the human species. And, mm. uh, you know, you like Roger said, you can learn race theory, basically eugenics, <laughs> in order to get past this point in the game. And it's a hard lock if you don't find some way to get past it. You have yeah. to. And race theory, I also did that this time. I did it a different way the last time I played. Uh, but I think it, you know, one of the things that this game often does is you can learn these skills or do these things to get past an area but you feel a little dirty doing it that way, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can use racism at various points to get chummy with somebody who will give up information, but then you just made your character racist. Yeah, yeah. So so I took a different approach because, <laughs> so one of the recommendations for playing this game uh, was from one of the game workers in uh, in the union branch here in the UK. Um, so I thought, you know, if I'm going to chat to him about the game, I need to go and find out what's happening with the strike and, you know, try and dig into that part. Of course, went to buy cigarettes first because, you know, I'd been set that task and I thought this would help the hangover. Spoiler, it doesn't help the hangover. You know, <laughs> I don't know whether that's an accuracy failure or, or just how bad his hangover is, right? Um, but 
as you like arrive at the picket line, there's so much going on, right? Mm. There's like a strike breaker trying to whip up a bunch of scabs. There's a blockade and you can talk to some of the drivers, one of whom is also a racist. You know, the other one is this kind of quixotic, mm. like mystic kind of, you know, he's just kind of talking about the loving waiting around and all this kind of stuff. But that was the point where I kind of thought this isn't just a representation of a strike in a video game, right? It's like, there's the guy sat on the stairs who appears to never have worked, but is somehow involved in the union and is kind of, you know, has his own kind of politics, which you can say that you think he's a communist, but he's like, no, no, I have like this other vision of the world. And you're <laughs> kind of having these like political debates on the picket line. And I just thought like, you know, it's not the first game I've played that's had a strike in it, right? But it's such a strange representation of a strike in lots of ways. Yeah. Um, and I think somehow I managed to do the jump to get the coat and kind of go around the back and end up in the union office. Um, that's how I did it the first time I played the game, as I went through the back door. Yeah, yeah. Because I thought the yeah the race theory. I thought this is the, this this is a communist build. This is you know this is not engaging in uh, in, in in race theory. This is a communist build. We're <laughs> but, not going to do this. But the communists thing that I didn't... will sabotage things, but they will not do eugenics. <laughs> but, a good but this was the this was the thing that I kind of didn't realize at first is the points that you start gaining for whether you're a fascist or a communist are like not told to you in the game, right? They're like in a menu. And at one point I checked and I was like, oh, I've got like one fascist point. Like when did that, you know, <laughs> what choice was it that led me to get that? Which I thought was kind of interesting, right? Usually games are so keen to be like, boom, you've got one good point. Your alignment has shifted or whatever. Whereas this is a bit more kind of, it's much murkier, right? And I love, although this is maybe a little late, but once, once, once you get to a certain threshold, you'll get this voice in your head that be that's like, hey there, <laughs> you've been doing a lot of communist stuff. You think you're a communist? And like, you're like, oh, I don't know. So it's pretty, it's pretty funny. No, it's, I mean, I think we'll talk more about like the thematic or theoretical or critical level of this game in other episodes. Uh, but maybe a touch on something. This is also a game about history and about like, how history gets transmitted into the present. Mm. And I think some of the opacity of the game mechanics, some of the ways in which the game refuses to communicate to you, like how to do certain things, ends up actually playing into that. Because mm. part of what you end up getting at is that what has happened in this city and how this city has dealt with being bombed, how it's dealt with the fallout of revolution and the failure of revolution mm -hmm. is something that people know in their bones, they know in their bodies, but they don't necessarily know how to talk about it or mm -hmm. communicate it, you know? And some people may be better than others, but for the most part, mm -hmm. they're sort of just trying to get through their day-to-day -day lives. This is like a lower class section of the city where you're dealing with like, not just like workers, but also like, you know, those good old lumpen proletariat, the gamblers, the, you know, the thieves. And like, this is where people wash up as well. And you'll see that even more as you go further in the game, there's another geographic section that actually opens up uh, that really even speaks to that even more. But this is, this is where people wash up. This is where history washes up and that you have to kind of navigate through this area and figure out how to get from point A to point B 
in a way that resembles a 1990s adventure game from like Sierra Online or LucasArts or something, mm -hmm. uh, where sometimes it's like kind of obtuse how you do X, Y, or Z. It's like, why is this banana open this door? Uh, that's not, you know, that's a LucasArts game, I think, uh, rather than this game. But it's that kind of logic of like, why does this do that? Uh, some of it has to do, I think, with like figuring out how this society came to be and how this place came to be the place that it is. Um, and um, to some degree that, you know, creators have talked about how this does echo, not one-to-one, -one, but does echo uh, Estonia's history as a place that was like passed back and forth uh, between different uh, regimes that had a very kind of uncomfortable fit in the Soviet Union, mm. uh, including an exile government while it was part of the Soviet Union, uh, that then like had its own version of a tech boom. I think Skype came from there, mm. if I'm remembering correctly, uh, before it was bought by Microsoft. And, uh, you know, so it's just like a weird situation. I think um, um, one of the things that really sort of uh, underlines what you just said, Christian, is the statue of Philippe III in the middle of the square, right? Where you go up and the first time you see it, you're like, this is an interesting statue, right? And it's, and it's, and it's sort of bombed and kind of falling over and you read the description. And the first time I didn't have the encyclopedia skills to even know anything, like, and I was like, there, I don't know who this is. That's great. And I just walked off. <laughs> so yeah, and you even meet those two older guys who have different mm. political dispositions who will talk to you about that. And one of them, he's like a hero, even though he knows he was flawed, but he's a hero just because he was the last in the monarchic lines and this guy's mm -hmm. a restorationist. Mm -hmm. And the other is like, but wasn't he just a drunken, psychotic lout? <laughs> yes. I, I enjoyed the discussion between those two. I thought that was a kind of, it, you know, there, it was a it felt like a political conversation you could stumble across between two old, oh yeah, I guess friends is complicated for those two, but you know, two old drinking buddies or bull buddies who are, you know, still ranting about politics 50 years later, right? Yeah. And I think that there's some nice kind of nuance in how bits of the politics start coming out, right? Um, but it definitely has that Eastern European, you know, histories of, revolutions and failed revolutions coming across quite clearly even from the get-go right mm. i really Absolutely. love um the bookstore i don't know if we're going to talk about the bookstore but like my favorite thing in this game is to read books for some reason um just because of the way that they do it um so i've read three or four books but um i love the question and answer back and forth it's like you're almost having a it's like the Basically, what you're experiencing when you're reading the game reminded me reminds me so much of like my inner dialogue when I'm reading a book. Not you're not reading the book; you're reading your inner dialogue while reading the book. Um, and so, uh, and I just I just really enjoyed that aspect of it and getting more of that information. And um, I haven't read any books. Oh, it's great. I feel like this is another thing where I just there's like a tool tip at some point that's like to move the clock on read a book and yeah. it like it didn't occur to me that there's some thing that happens when you do it but of course there is in this game right there's a yeah internal so monologue or something. <laughs> you end up having to meet people at night and that's why i do it but because like when the daytime kim is with you 
and he's freaking annoying because he won't ever leave you because there are certain things you can only do by yourself. And so I have to get rid of him. So I have to get it to be late enough for him to go to bed and then go. So I'm reading to pass the time. Um, but there's also like a role playing game that you can buy, which I, I, you can't, I was a little, I wish with the role playing game, to be honest, that there, it was actually more interactive that you could actually play a little more. Um, because you can basically read the rule book. You can, you can take out the die. There's an interesting thing you can do with different die in the game. And you can take out a figurine, which is not, it's like this, basically the role playing game that you get is this like weird racist, like uh, East European, like kind of like Norse, like, like, game right and it's not the it's not the original game so you can't play it it's, it's only like a modified third edition um uh but you know it's just kind of cool to like look at all of the things and take out all of the knickknacks and stuff so yeah absolutely uh i've done a little bit in the, with the books and, and the book sort of becomes a weirdly important place at a couple yeah. of points in the game if you you know because it helps you get access to another area in the game that will become crucial later. Uh, but yeah, I'm curious, did people have favorite characters in the game so far? Like favorite characters mm -hmm. besides uh, our perhaps nameless detective? I really love the girl outside of the bookstore. Um, who The daughter who of the yeah. bookstore owner. Who explains every genre and why they exist to you. <laughs> I love that part. I think I've already That's... said I love Kuno. Uh, the more he curses at the me, the more I, I love him. Uh, but I also love the lazy, the kind of like Paul Lefergue, you know, Marx's nephew, right to laziness, uh, non-worker. That's the union guy. Oh, right. Just kind of right. like hanging out on the railing. With the, with, yeah. Oh, that guy, that guy, yeah. Except he's kind of obviously working, right? It's, he's overseeing the strike breakers. So that was the thing that I kind of, he's like, oh, I don't really work. I said, well, why are you sat on this stairway looking at the scabs, right? It's like, there's a, he's a kind of weird contradictory figure, right? I thought. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what happens within the game. And obviously I won't say even if I do remember, which apparently my memory is just like Swiss cheese right now. Uh, but there's just something about that kind of aloof quality of him. There's also like, he's, it's sort of similar to the lorry driver or the like, I forget what they call him in the game, like cabaneras drivers, mm -hmm. uh, the trans, the transport driver, uh, who, you know, you find out more as the game goes on, but is just kind of cool. And he's humming or singing when you approach him. I think even one of the options in the dialogue is to ask him, how did you get so cool? <laughs> oh right i remember him yeah yeah, yeah. Like, and you end up later on kind of forcing him to do something yeah yeah there's also joyce messier who's the wild pines corporation's representative who's probably everybody's favorite character to hate perhaps i love asking her very elementary questions about reality that's my favorite part because it's really annoying to her <laughs> she's like oh yes i guess i'll answer more questions about reality yeah, she's also, she's somebody that will give you money if you ask for it. I don't know if folks did that. I, she gave me like 120 uh, 
whatever they are. They're not euros, but whatever the currency is. Uh, real, real. Real, yeah. She gave me like 120 real just because I asked for it. And you can do that with a lot of people. And she's one of the few that will actually say yes. So will actually that the aloof worker guy near the factory. I would definitely was just like very mercenary about asking people for money, but also very mercenary about saying that capitalism is the only system worthwhile, uh, you know, and that it has been here since the beginning of time and will forever exist. Very, as the very sort of a very realistic way to portray a capitalist. Yeah. I'm basically role playing Milton Friedman, <laughs> and, you know. You didn't go around picking up all the plastic bottles then, right? You just went around Oh, I've been doing that money. as well. Oh, okay. I've, been, I've been asking money. I'm a hustler. That's my, I think I even might have like some kind of hustling attribute at this point. That's funny. So did y'all have difficulty getting money at the beginning of the game? Because that was something that I struggled with for a bit. Yeah, and the bit that I... there was. Yeah, the bit with the union boss I found particularly funny around this, where he gives you the novelty check. <laughs> I don't know if you've got this. And I was thinking, finally, I need I don't have to keep picking up plastic bottles. Like I have somewhere to stay. And it, there's like the inner monologue where you're like, should I take this giant sized novelty check? And I just thought, no, 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 it's fine. And then you just get laughed at, right? And I just thought, why did I believe that this was gonna work? Um, which is what I quite like that the game, like, you know, there are lots of bits that are like not a power fantasy, right? Mm. It's like the game telling you like, you idiot, like, why did you think this corrupt union boss was going to give you an actual check to pay for you to come and investigate stuff? Like, it's kind of like a slap around the face and like, oh, okay, back to picking up plastic bottles. Like, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's also another distinguishing thing about this as a role-playing game is that you can't just set up camp anywhere, right? You're trying to get money in part just to get a roof over your head at night and because you don't know where your home is because you're in a amusiac. Um, and you've blown, I think you blew your per diem or something is the idea. Like you blew your per diem for like two weeks or something and like two days just drinking it off. Uh, I mean, it is useful. Once you, you find a yellow bag, you can collect bottles in and you can trade the bottles in for like nickels basically for like you know five cents five p or whatever and uh you know when you go back to your apartment the first evening perhaps uh when you're going to go to bed you can find all these bottles that you drank and you know turn those into cash later it's not very much but it's like okay well at least my drinking did something like good i guess <laughs> yeah so you know we've got so far in the games we're detective who doesn't really know much about his background. I think probably where we're at, uh, the first third of the game at least, you're probably gonna figure out your name. You may or may not accept your name at that point. Your name, sorry to spoil uh, for folks, but is Harry. Uh, and uh, even if you don't accept it, that ends up, you know, they, people will push that on you. And you'll find a lot more about yourself, including some things you might not wanna know about yourself by the end of the game. Uh, you know, and, and you're basically you're taking on a murder case. And maybe one character that we should talk about for maybe wrapping up uh, is good old Lieutenant Kim, your partner in this, who I have to admit, I love. And <laughs> the more I talk to him, the more I love him. Uh, because huh. he's actually got some depth in a way that I didn't expect at first. But what do people think about Kim? It's a good question, right? Yeah, it's a good question. Again, I kind of thought when I met him, it was like, okay, this is going to be an element of like 
some kind of tutorial for the game or like he's going to set you on the right track or so on. But I, I, I quite like his kind of aloof annoyance with you. Mm-hmm. Um, or like when he intervenes in some of the conversations and he's like, no, no, like we're not talking about that. That's like a bad way to go. It's like, oh God, I've embarrassed myself like yet again in front of in front of my partner. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of wonder, yeah, I guess I'm still a bit too early on to see how that relationship develops. I found what was interesting was like, I definitely thought his aloofness was really funny at the beginning. And I thought it was sort of a critique of you at the very beginning where it was like, clearly you're like a drunken fool. And here's this guy just sort of commenting on it all the time, especially when you're trying to inter- to interview people. Right. Um, and once I got to Joyce the first time, I started to recognize that, you know, by acting so strangely, like by acting so like weird and off the wall that you can actually get people to reveal certain things that you wouldn't otherwise. And that Kim knows this and that he encourages it in certain situations. And so I thought that was really fascinating. It was sort of a fascinating uh, development in their, in their relationship at the very beginning. I mean, in a certain way, he's a straight man in, in a comedic duo, right? But on the other hand, he's also not on the inside of the system in quite the way that you might expect at first. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you realize pretty quickly, I think, that he is a minority, mm-hmm. right? That he is from this place called Seal, uh, which, you know, maybe also is supposed to signal that he's supposed to be sort of vaguely sort of analogous to being of Asian descent. Uh, in the game. And there are these moments where he encounters these people that ask him, you know, like, where are you from? And that talk to him in specific ways. And you can choose, you know, Harry, you, the detective, the protagonist can choose how you react, right? You could actually join in and be racist against your own partner. You can call people out. You can stay silent and just kind of walk or like tiptoe around it. And you can actually see him get angry about it. So it's interesting that you're dealing with like, you as a cop who's on the outside because he has an amnesiac and maybe a disco star um, in a figurative sense, uh, a little off, a little Lynchian. Uh, And then on the other hand, this guy who's actually dealing with racism and he is from Revachol, right? His grandparents were from this place, Seal, or of Sealite descent. Uh, But he was born there and has dealt with this sort of racism and with being treated as an outsider. And so I, I, I appreciated that. And I appreciated it in a game. You can imagine a very different version of this game, but decided to only tackle class because I think class is often the most obvious part, sort of class and your kind of specific ideological position on it. But it actually grapples with racism quite a bit and with xenophobia and with the question of how you're going to handle things and how you typecasts different people like how you right. read people's faces and read you know the color of their skin at points and what you do with that as a cop and maybe maybe the question we could kind of close on so we don't go for too long uh is just a general question of one how do you feel playing a cop in a game uh at a moment where like in a lot of different media uh, there, you know, a lot of questions are being asked about what it means to make police procedurals right now. I will say the one that first comes to mind to me is the show Brooklyn Nine-Nine being put on a kind of hiatus as they figure out how to kind of rewrite their conclusion in response to things happening with Black Lives Matter. Uh, but I don't know how folks feel about playing a cop in a police procedural. And then two, like, how do you think the game's handling it? 
I think I think there are some differences playing it in a UK context. Um, and I guess the the difference that I've been thinking about is there is a hugely popular show that has just finished in the UK called Line of Duty, which is a kind of procedural, yeah, it's a procedural cop show about corruption and about an anti-corruption unit in, in, in the police. And it's one of these astonishing things that like, I don't know, like a quarter of the UK population watched it or something. Um, and it's been talked about in the news. It's been, you know, there's a kind of whole thing around it. And I really don't like cop shows um, for my own political background, right? Like I don't, I don't want to watch shop shows about cops. Um, and it, it's funny, I was talking to a friend about this the other day and the argument that, that we were having was about there's a long history of cop shows in the UK, like the US, but like there are some shows with cops in, like The Wire, of course. But so like, I guess how to think about drawing the line around shows that I think have a negative impact in promoting an idea of cops as a good thing or a natural thing or, a, you know, uh, these sorts of things. And so when I was playing the game, like I thought about this and at first I tried to kind of not be a cop in the game and you obviously can't, do that right like you have to, to yeah. take on the cop duties so it's kind of you can role play to some extent right but ultimately you are a cop which is quite uncomfortable hmm. yeah i've been watching steve mcqueen's small axe anthology um which does some similar things but it's it's you know i i was reminded of john boyega's stuff in red white and blue and sort of the racism within uh within the British uh, law enforcement organization. Um, I don't know, it's really interesting. I um, have a weird um, relationship with cops too because my father, whom I have a complicated relationship with is a retired cop, you know? And so, you know, he grew up very much, I think in the wake of, uh, Hoover sort of and and the way that Hoover sort of and the the culture of the the early 20th century America really sort of idolized the cop as the as the sort of superhero kind of thing figure you know and I think I think that's kind of the context of a lot of older cop shows um, I'm seeing in this in this game a real sort of interrogation of that on multiple levels where um, it's not quite apparent where your power comes from you kind of it's 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 pretty complicated um your your power is always um uh, precarious like you know like it always seems like you're just kind of trying to like fake it and and hope that you have a good outcome um and I think that's part of like, you know, going back to this whole question of like having all of the die rolls be sort of under under the hood. I think that's part of it where you just kind of don't know what's going on and you're kind of just trying to go with it. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, like you like like Christian pointed out, like, you know, these issues of race are all over the place and you have to navigate them. Um, and and so I, I, I just find it sort of an interesting way to think of that genre as something that, I mean, it is sort of a deconstruction of that, of that sort of cop procedural 
story in a lot of ways. I, I think the political context of the game upsets some of those traditional narratives around cops though, right? It's like mm. there's isn't there's one bit where he they I can't remember exactly the argument for how it's formed, but isn't it like it's imposed by the current occupying force post the revolution and mm-hmm. part of their power remains from then and some of it's changed. You know, you have these kind of discussions with the union people. It's like, well, we have our power. We're the real power here. Right. You're just like a holdover of a post-revolutionary coup that shouldn't really be in this neighborhood anyway. There's like, right. there's no sense of right. you being like an ahistorical institution, right? Right. That's interesting. Um, yeah, no, and it's even it's weirdly contingent, right? Like it's you're like a citizens militier or something. I forget the exact title, but you get the sense that your sort of ability to actually police is very tentative. And there are right. even conversations about what it takes to arrest somebody. And I think probably we'll get to this in the next episode. Uh, and if folks are wondering, I'm guessing based on this sort of you know, our pacing for today, I think probably three episodes will be roughly what we do. Uh, and I imagine this is roughly what we'll start next time. But you find out pretty early on in the game who probably did the murder. And you find out, without giving away too much, that the, there's union involvement, right? That this is a game that's about, in part, who gets to govern the area of the game, right? Who gets to govern this place, Martinez, this essentially this ghetto, self-described ghetto of this city. Is it going to be the union? Is it going to be the police? Is it going to be the corporation Wild Pines, which is a shipping mm. company? Uh, I don't know. I like to think of it as like the Amazon of this game world, <laughs> uh, the Amazon.com of this game world. Uh, this is a game where logistics is also where capitalism is at. Uh, and you know, I think that that tentativeness is really important because it, it it sort of rhymes with the tentativeness of you as a cop who doesn't remember he's a cop initially. Mm-hmm. Everything has to be considered. Nothing can be taken for granted. And I'll admit, I'm somebody who does find myself attracted to police procedurals because I, I really like the narrative rhythms and formal structures of them. I like the whodunit quality, but I also find myself incredibly uncomfortable enjoying it, you know, because of my lefty politics, right? And my sort of default position being that police make me uncomfortable and that I would like to find something to replace them with. Uh, And I actually do think that is where the game brings you to. And I think this game does with the best detective fiction sense at the very least folks like Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, uh, and maybe a little bit later, Patricia Highsmith and others have done, which is, you know, produce what somebody like Frederick Jameson will call like these cognitive maps of societies and of cities, these senses of like, this is how the social system works. And you figure out how the social system works because something has broken down in it. And you as a detective have to examine the, the seams that are frayed, have to examine the jagged edges that aren't fitting together and the underside of things because that's your job, because you get to investigate those things. You get to see how the society works and doesn't work um, even mm. if you're on the wrong side of things, right? It's so interesting, like um, what you were saying, Christian, reminded me how Foucauldian I consider sort of cops to be. I mean, they obviously, it's not very deep reading, but like 
But like, you know, you, you didn't see this occurring in police procedurals. They are there to just determine what is socially appropriate and what isn't, not just in terms of the law, right? But like, I, one of the things that I'm always fascinated by in police procedurals is when they're interviewing somebody and they learn that something's off about this person. Something's weird about this person. And usually it's somebody who, you know, either has, um, you know, maybe they, maybe it's, maybe they have a sexual identity that they're not, you know, they're not sort of displaying publicly or, or it could be any of a number of things. It's usually nothing to do with, you know, something that's legal or illegal, but that sort of gives them a key into like figuring out what really happened and arresting, ultimately arresting this person. And so um, it just has always fascinated me that that cops primarily are there to figure out if you're a weirdo and if you're a weirdo, they're going to lock you away kind of thing. And I think the strength of this game, you could imagine this game putting you in a more comfortable position as a private eye, right? Which is often what detective fiction does in order to avoid a certain amount of complicity. You're the former cop that washed out and is now a private eye. And it doesn't give you that. In fact, without giving too much away, the further you go in the game, the more uncomfortable you're probably going to be with yeah. what your background is. Uh, and the more you find about how complicit you've been, the more uncomfortable you, you should probably, hopefully, get. And I actually think that's a strength, right? You're not one of you know, Chandler's characters who can kind of step to the side of the corrupt police. Instead, you're more like, you know, McNutty uh, from The Wire. You're more like, you know, Jimmy McNulty, uh, who is on the one hand, yeah, he's like the cop that you want to like, but on the other hand, at a certain point, you realize he's also complicit yeah. with things. He's also upholding the power differential because at the end of the day, he also wants to imagine that there's a version of the system with the cops in power that can work. And right. I don't think that's the direction that this Elysium takes you or it takes you in that direction only to sort of impugn your own subject position, your own place in the story. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not supposed to feel comfortable. You're not supposed to be a hero. You're supposed to feel kind of bad. And this game isn't about feeling bad or good. It's not like Mass Effect where you get to be like, you get to follow it as the, the virtuous or the renegade path. Mm -hmm. uh, because they don't want to quite call it evil. Uh, instead, yeah. it's more like, here's five different versions of shit you can feel about yourself, right? Or five different ways you can feel shitty about yourself mm -hmm. for different ways you're corrupt or complicit with things. Right. Hmm. I like that. I think it's really, I mean, it's fascinating, right? It's a fascinating way to think of a role-playing game. But any last thoughts before we... Uh, adjourn until episode two of this mini series shout outs favorite moments uh, uh i don't know moments where your palm struck your forehead because you did something <laughs> stupid or something wonderful i think there are too many of those to mention right like I, <laughs> yeah I, yeah i feel like i can see the appeal of a second playthrough if only just to save yourself a bit of embarrassment right this has all the cruelty of those 90s CRPGs, right? Those games were harsh. Like this, I think the closest version to this game is either Fallout 2 or Planescape Torment, both of which oh, are wow. games you can really easily fail at. Wow. I, uh, cigarettes and, and alcohol are interesting to me. 
I think that when I started, I was like not going to use them. Yeah. <laughs> but now I'm just using them all the time. Like they're so useful. I will say, crazy. so the tip for people that are maybe playing along with us, if you decide to play along with us, uh, or for, you know, you, Jamie, who's earlier in the game, uh, rugs can save you from an impasse, right? Like if you get to a point where you think you're, you've broken the game in a bad way, where you've hit a wall that you can't get past, you could probably get past certain checks with yeah. drugs and alcohol. <laughs> Just hit uh, the bottle. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. You can pass certain skill checks. That's like if you do a certain build, that might be the only way to do it. So, which I think teaches us a valuable lesson about drugs and alcohol and just real life, which is sometimes they're absolutely necessary, especially <laughs> during a pandemic or if you're working in a university system. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's right. call it then. Cool. Uh, so episode two, folks, uh, I think we'll maybe at, at the very least play till we open up another land mass, uh, find out what happened to Harry's car, uh, and maybe discover a few more spaces like a very interesting cathedral. Uh, and we'll talk more about how we chose to play the game, how we're role-playing. I think everybody's role-playing as good communars except for me who's trying to be a neoliberal pig uh i really tried i really tried to be um a moralist at the beginning but then i was like i don't i mean i don't know what i mean I i'm might an as ultra well liberal off. but not a moralist just to be <laughs> i was gonna uh, i like to think of myself as like a queer neoliberal like very pro uh diversity in the workplace kind of person homo um the new CIA recruitment <laughs> advert, right? Yeah, more, <laughs> more or less. Uh, you know, I once interviewed, I was once a finalist for a position at Warwick. Uh, and, you know, I keep in touch with the folks there. And I've talked a lot with, you know, some of their folks that are heavy in their unions and stuff there. And just hearing about some of the shit they've had to deal with, that's what it makes me think of. Like, I'm on the wrong end of that uh, fight. Uh, in the way that I'm role-playing my character, which, just to be clear, is not my actual politics. <laughs> but yeah. So, That's the whole and, point of role-playing. You, you can not be yourself, right? Yeah, but usually I'm just trying to be like a version of myself that happens to be a mage, or in this case, yeah, a version yeah. of myself that happens to be a cop, communist cop. Communist but uh, <laughs> but it's, not, it's not what I'm going for in the second playthrough. So yeah. thanks for doing this, Jamie. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure. Um, being our Marxist at the arcade, as it were. And Roger, as always, a lovely time seeing you. And uh, yeah, we will see folks again soon. Thanks for listening. Yeah.